Well, Live Like Jesus has been our series that we've launched a couple of weeks ago. We're going to dig right back in this week to a thought on this living like Jesus. Now, you know, when we think about that, we'd say, what does that look like for you? And uh, we would even want to go a little step further. We'd say, did you live relational this week? Did you live intentional this week? Did you live missional this week? When we look at living like Jesus, how will I put that into practice? What do I grab a hold of? What do I put into practice? And how do I live like that? Now, I think it's really important for all of us to remember, we, we, just, we can't beat ourselves up about the past. Some of us look at our, our past identity. Some of us look at our past failures. And those become our label that we feel like we have to be identified by and how we need to continue to live. Sometimes we even look and we say, well, how, how does God really look past who I was or even the struggles that I am today? But we're reminded about how God does not look at us as who we were, but rather who we've become because of the work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness by which he sees us as through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is what brought us to salvation It is what transformed our lives to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that power of the gospel is by which we live in as Christians each and every day. So all of us as believers, if you say that I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, we are in this progressive growth process called sanctification. And that is being set apart from the world in order that we might be more like Jesus Christ. And so that's why very naturally when we come to a series like Live Like Jesus, that is the day in and day out life that we are trying to live. Now, there are those moments where we try to check out and say, living like Jesus is not for me today. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Somebody's rubbing me the wrong way, and I haven't had three cups of coffee. And so living like Jesus, not going to work. Now, those moments come in our life, but the Holy Spirit living within us convicts us very soon thereafter and says, no, get back on track, eyes on Jesus. Peter did that when he walked on the water. Bold statement of faith. If it's really you, bid me to come. He says, come. He took his step out into the water and started to walk towards Jesus until something distracting happened. The outside elements of howling wind and crashing waves distracted Peter from his focus on full faith on Jesus Christ. And what happened when he took his eyes off of Jesus? He immediately sank. And he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus graciously reached down and brought him back to his feet and really reminded him of little faith that he had. Why did he doubt? Why was he so fearful? And we think, well, good night. He had every reason to fear because of what was going on around him. And we look at that in our own Christian lives. And we say, so much of me wants to live like Jesus, but the outside elements are so overwhelmingly distracting that I become doubtful and I become fearful and then I begin to sink. So if you're sinking today, Christian, cry out, Lord, save me, help me. And you reach up to gain that firm footing again where God wants to put you. And he'll bring you back to your feet and say, let's go get it again. You can live like Jesus. So last week, we began by looking at one of these three areas, relational, intentional, or missional. We began to 
to dissect this whole thought of living like Jesus relationally. And we looked at the beginning of John chapter 1, and we saw how Jesus did something very amazing with his disciples, his very close friends. He washed their stinky feet. And in washing their feet, he set out this example of servanthood leadership. And even in verse number 15 of John chapter 13, as we studied last week, you remember he said, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Then he said in verse number 17, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them, if you practice them. And so we find here that this this living like Jesus is one that he is going to help us by setting the example time and time again. So would you turn to John 13? Uh, Join with me here in this passage. Last week we studied verses 1 through 17. And this week I want to come to the latter part. And I want us to see verse 31 through 35. Therefore, when he was gone out, so, so Judas has left the room. And Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Father, we're going to dig into this passage of Scripture, and here at the very beginning, with excitement, I know in my heart, eagerness ready to communicate the message that you've given to me, I want to ask you to give us the message as your church today. And so we fully put our dependency on you, And we ask for your leading and directing today. Encourage our hearts. I know there's some sitting in this congregation right now that are saddened. Their hearts are heavy laden. They've got some circumstances that are going on in their life that just seem very overwhelming. And so use the text in some way to encourage their hearts today. But then also for the carnal heart, the one who is probably sinking right now because the outside distractions have become Fearful in our life, they've caused some doubt. Does God really care? Is it important to live like Jesus? And so within that realm, would you convict our heart? So help us today to be challenged in this text, and we'll praise you for it, give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I found a quote this week in my preparation and study, and it says this, Love is relational dynamite. It obliterates all obstacles in its path. Love is relational dynamite, obliterating everything that's in its path. I love that. Therefore, when I study John 31 through 35, I see relational dynamite. That's the approach that we'll take this morning. Now, some would say that their relationships are definitely relational dynamite. They would say, it doesn't take long for me and -and so-and-so to be together before it explodes, Or you'd say, since the honeymoon has been over, it's only been relational dynamite since that day. Or some of you would say, when I try to interact with my children or my teenagers, it feels like a piece of dynamite has exploded. So you might say, relational dynamite, I've got that covered. But that's not relational dynamite today. Because relational dynamite equals love 
and the kind of love that Jesus is going to teach us about. Now, a reminder here about this passage of Scripture. As we studied it last week, remember, this is during the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's the Last Supper. It is about 24 hours before Christ is going to go to the cross and give up the ghost. And so these are intense moments for Jesus. These are the last hours he will be here with his beloved disciples. And he is going to use this time to give them warning. He's going to give them comfort. He's going to give them guidance of the things that are yet to come. And so after the verses that we studied last week, we see that the passage of Scripture takes a major shift. Things are going well. Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And then he says to the crowd, somebody in among you is going to betray me. All of a sudden, in that moment, there's a lot of insecurity and doubt by all the disciples. Peter leans over to John and says, hey, ask if it's me. Ask who it is. John is right there, uh, right beside, sitting right beside Jesus. Well, we know as the who is going to be the betrayer. And before we get to our text of today, Judas leaves the upper room. And now Jesus is going to give this new commandment to the disciples. This new commandment is relational dynamite. And in verse 31 and 32, we see that this relational dynamite is done to the glory of God. When Judas left, it signaled a time for more deliberate and intentional explanation of Christ to his disciples. The departure of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, which was soon to come, led Jesus to say this in verse number 31. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. The cross was inevitable. It was coming, and Jesus would enter his glory via the cross. Throughout the Gospel of John, from here on out, we're going to see, as you read and study, that the glorifying of the Son of Man is going to be done through suffering, through death, and through the ultimate sovereign control or power that Jesus Christ exhibits. So the glorifying of the Son of Man, the glorifying of God is getting ready to unfold. And this is the transitional verse. Remember, all throughout the book of John, we've seen the time is not yet come. The time is for him is not yet come. In the beginning of John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, he knew that his hour was come, that he would depart out of this world. And so now he says, Judas, the betrayer, has left. Now is the Son of Man glorified or better translated, to be glorified. He has not yet been glorified in this moment just because Judas has left. It's just freed the tension of the crowd. It's just made way for the conversation of the inevitable cross that's coming to be able to be brought up with the end result being that Jesus would soon be glorified and therefore God himself also would soon be glorified. So now we see this fourfold fourfold glory in these two verses The first one is he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's the glory of Jesus has come, and that glory is the cross. The cross is coming, and John MacArthur said this, love's highest expression is is self-sacrifice. Barclay said this, the greatest glory in life is the glory which comes from sacrifice. When you think about the soldier who ultimately gives his life as sacrifice for the betterment of his company, for those that are in his band of brothers, for those that he, are, he is fighting for, for the nation and country which he serves. That sacrifice is something they commit to because they know that the greatest glory in life is the glory which comes from sacrifice. 
It was at the cross Jesus would be glorified. We see that what the cross accomplished was that Jesus paid the price for all sinners who would believe. He paid the price and took care of that which was going to be swift justice by God to all sinners. And so the sacrifice of the cross was Jesus paying for that salvation. But then also the cross was for Jesus to find victory over death, over sin, and over Satan. That's how he would be glorified. But then the verse continues and says, and God is glorified in him. So in Jesus, God has been glorified. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ to go to the cross. It was not murder. It was not a life taken, but it was a life that was given. It was an act of submission and obedience to the will of the Father that he would give himself to the cross. And as Jesus gave himself in obedience. It's the same picture that we have as parents, knowing that the obedience of our child shows a love and honor to our will or to our direction. In the same way, it is Jesus submitting to the will of his Father. It is honoring and obeying that which the Father has sent him to do. And so this brought honor and glory to his heavenly Father. Through the cross, God's nature, God's very nature would be revealed at the cross. When we see the cross, we see the gruesome scene that it must have been. We see the shock on people's eyes, the fear in people's hearts. The ten disciples that fled the scene, Judas has already hung himself, he's long gone. It was only John who stayed there at the base of the cross. Ten others ran in fear. One has already denied him three times. So this is the environment of the cross. But what happened at the cross was that God's nature was revealed. God's nature with his power, his justice, his holiness, God's faithfulness as he was faithful to the promise of the covenant that he had made from back in the Old Testament to that which was now being fulfilled as the Lamb of God giving the sacrifice for all mankind. His nature was revealed in his faithfulness and of course, His nature of love was revealed through the cross. And then the third fold area of the glory is if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. So in Jesus, God glorifies himself. When Christ looks beyond the cross, he sees the exaltation that is soon to come where he will be put at the Father's right hand. You remember how Paul wrote it? We looked at the passage last week in Philippians chapter 2. And in verse number 8, and being found in fashion, Jesus, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But now he continued, Paul also wrote this, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then verse 11, or verse 12, and then it says, what? To the glory of God the Father. Wow. So what Christ accomplished on the cross was that he was not only glorified in himself via the cross, But also the heavenly father was glorified, honored by his death through obedience and submission. So God will glorify Jesus and he did and it was straightway, it was immediate. 
Jesus says that this will happen immediately without any hesitation or delay. We know that his resurrection and ascension would shortly follow the cross. We also know that uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, one scholar dissected that verse or put some words to it that would help us to see. He said, this was the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. He willingly endured the cross, despising the shame, and his coronation when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It became what Jesus would see beyond the cross. It was that his heavenly Father would be glorified. And when we think about the challenge of obedience in our own lives, we can only see the immediate. (laughs) We see the challenges of the immediate obedience. But Jesus was not bogged down with the details of the cross as he saw himself glorified by the cross, God's nature revealed by the cross, and he saw that he would be soon exalted to the right hand of the Heavenly Father, and that Heavenly Father would be glorified, all because of that moment of obedience and submission to the cross. Now, we become benefactors of that, and we become recipients of that grace, and we become beneficiaries of that gift of God of eternal life through Jesus. Now, we ask ourselves here, okay, we can dissect 31 and 32, but what does relational dynamite to the glory of God look like for us? Like, what does that look like for tomorrow? You know, we think about this, and our instinct would tell us that love is solely focused on us. Valentine's Day is coming up, and a lot of preparations for Valentine's Day. By the way, we, we actually, in our house, we skip Valentine's Day candy, and yesterday I went to Target and bought 22 Cadbury eggs. And, uh, and then a package of the Reese peanut butter cup-shaped eggs. Now, I know they make them in little hearts, but they don't have the right consistency, okay? So you got to have the Easter egg-shaped Reese peanut butter cup, all right? So I bought a package of those. Now, I know I brought them home, and the girl said, is Easter coming up? And I'm like, that's two and a half months away. But, I mean, now is the time to start stocking up on the candy. And... Uh, so I know Valentine's Day is coming. We'll, we'll take care of that later, but uh, we'll get the discounted candy then. But uh, we'll pay a dollar for a Cadbury egg if we have to, even if it's 22 of them. If you can find a better deal, please let us know, because Natalie is addicted, and it's really her problem and not mine. But uh, we could use a love offering to help us with the eggs. But when we think about this love, this topic of love, we know that love is, is so often solely focused on us. How do I love and then gain love in return? I'm willing to love because I'm going to gain something in return. And then we even think, how do people show appreciation for my love? So we can even believe that our love should make a complete cycle to where I will choose to love here and therefore it will always come back to me so that my love is appreciated or at least my love is extended back to me by somebody loving me. Now, that's not maybe all the time, but that becomes our natural human instinct when we look at love. That's why it feels so good, because we say, someone finally took notice of me. Someone finally cared for me. Someone finally values me. Now, you see how all of this love focus. And our human instinct is all centered on me. 
And, and we say that sense is so strong, it's so natural, and it's, it's so obvious to most people. But to say that there, there might be a better way to love, that there's a more satisfying way to love, a more Christ-like way of loving, a stronger, a more simply cost. We think then we would say this love to the motivation of God's glory. If we say relational dynamite, this love to the glory of God, what does that look like in my life? How do I love that way? Well, these become byproducts. The appreciation shown to us, being valued, being cared for, being loved in return, those come as byproducts of loving like Christ. They don't become sole motivators to love like Christ. (laughs) When you look at the life of Christ, he was never motivated to love others because they would care for him. It was really the exact opposite. He never was motivated to love because people would show appreciation to him. He was never motivated to love because he would be valued by people. He was motivated to love because he knew about this loving to the glory of God. Now, we have had our eyes opened and our hearts in tuned to see the glory of Christ through the gospel. And so if we can look at love through the eyes and lenses of the gospel, we can follow this new commandment that Jesus gives in verse 33, 34, and 35. Relational dynamite is the new commandment. And Jesus was giving his farewell commandments to his disciple. If they are going to ever hear his voice, time is short. Now is the time, disciples. Sit up, open up, and perk up to what I'm about to say. Because Jesus is going to give them some important, crucial truth. Now, we all remember in the Gospel of Matthew, when the lawyer tried to back Jesus into a corner and saying, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Hoping that Jesus would give some answer that would rile up the crowd or at least cause the religious leaders to want to do something to him. But Jesus, simply knowing the hearts of man, gave what the greatest commandment is. And he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. The crowd was marveled. The disciples certainly had something to digest. As they thought about loving others, or loving their neighbors as themselves, that's something to shoot for. That's something attainable. When you think about loving people, it kind of goes back to treat others as you would want them to treat you, the golden rule. So the disciples are processing this. They're probably trying to put it into action. As Jesus would quote this from the uh, Torah, from the Pentateuch, from the Old Testament law, he would give what he had given in the book of Leviticus, this same thought, love God, love your neighbor. So now at the Last Supper, Jesus will give them a final command, but he changes something. He doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love others as I love you. Wow. So the new commandment that he is going to give here changes the focus from loving others as I love myself to now loving others as God loves me. Jesus said that, This new command, it's becoming 
a new kind of love or a love like its own. It's a high demand here. This is a higher standard of love, and it is based on the example of Jesus. Does that sound familiar? The example of Jesus. Last week, Jesus said, I've set an example for you as I've washed your feet. So here's the example, and you guys do this to one another. Then he goes on by saying, when you know to do this and you practice it, you will be happy, you will be content, you will be joyful, you will be fulfilled. Now he comes later, Judas the betrayer has left, and he says, guys, let's get nitty-gritty. I've got a new commandment to give to you. Now, we don't read between the lines. Jesus didn't add verbiage here, but we could have thought had the reminder as the men's thinking about this whole love thought. Yeah, God, we, Jesus, we know that we're supposed to love, love God, heart, soul, and mind, and then love others as ourselves. And Jesus says, but here's the new commandment. I want you to love one another as the example I have set by loving you. So that goes to a whole new place. Love like Jesus. The daunting task of loving each other as Christ loves us can, can only be done by the transforming power of this new covenant. Romans chapter 5. We have, um, we have quoted this before from the pulpit. It is a verse that we have looked at before. If you don't know the truth of Romans 5.5, 5, highlight it, circle it, mark it, write it in your notes. Do something to study Romans chapter 5. We know Romans 5.8, God commendeth his love toward us, demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet another amazing picture of how Christ loves us. But in verse number 5 of that passage, it tells us that in hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So we have no excuse to say, I don't know how to love like Jesus. Nobody can say, I cannot love like Jesus. Because if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ who has committed your life to him, the gift of the Holy Spirit lives within you, and that gift of the Holy Spirit made a way for God's love to be shed abroad within your heart. Not just one little point that gets a little part of your heart, but he says, completely saturating your heart. So how do we intentionally love others? Think about this for a moment. We're talking about loving others as Christ loves us. How do I intentionally love other people? Even, even the overbearing spouse who has more rude words to say than ever kind words. Or the disrespectful teenager or child who struggles to even give a small smile in my direction? Or how do I love the confrontational co-worker who is loud, boisterous, and talks about me behind my back? How do I love my in-laws who have never treated me like a part of the family? How do I love my neighbor who, though I have tried, is just so difficult to get along with? How? So I think, first of all, we got to love selflessly. When we love selflessly, that means we're not thinking of ourselves. Americans have been programmed to think about our rights. And from the very early stages of our life, we think and are motivated by our rights. 
And so if somebody mistreats me, no one appreciates me, and nobody values me, well, they're not getting any love in return from me. Well, that's not loving selflessly. And if we're going to love like Jesus, we have to love selflessly. And secondly, we need to love sacrificially. Loving sacrificially means no limit. It means never holding back. It means never second-guessing, and it, it means never looking at my needs over the others. It goes back to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Looking every man on that which, of others instead of on himself. And then we need to love intentionally, thinking through practical steps. We tell the couple that is having a very difficult time getting along. They have the other relational dynamite we talked about at the beginning. And they can't be kind to each other. They don't know how to, they just don't know how to get out of this funk with each other. And we encourage them to be intentional with their love. Leave a love note, send a gift, sweet words of encouragement, edification, calm responses. These are the things that are given by way of saying, how do I love intentionally? Intentionally with your parents, you can... You can learn to, to love intentionally, or you can practice loving intentionally with your children and your teenagers, even the one that doesn't even crack a smile in your direction, the one that really refuses to have open conversation, the one who wants to dishonor instead of honor, the one who wants to disobey instead of obey, the one who wants to rebel instead of submit. So ask God, how do I love them intentionally? Then we also need to love forgivingly. Enduring love is built on forgiveness. How many of you in here have been married for 40 years or more? Would you raise your hand, 40 years or more? So there's a, a good number of those who've been married for 40 years or more. And I think if we had the time to ask them about their story, I think a lot of things would always come back to this, that enduring love is built on forgiveness. And by the way, those couples who've been married 40, 45, 50 years, 55 plus, they probably are still having or two. <laughs> Truth is, yeah, there's a someone of experience. <laughs> Had to say it even today. So we think about this, honey, I'm sorry. I, I responded in a very negative way. And you know, sometimes we hold back apology because we think they should be able to learn how to deal with us. We think, that's just me. I mean, that's who you married. You know, that's who I've become. Don't try to change me, woman, right? <laughs> and that's when they get God on their side to get some work done. The reality is, is so often we are not quick to apologize because of our own pride that says, well, I only responded to you that way because you kind of built up the tension to begin with. Or we say, I don't really understand why you're so sensitive in this matter. I don't understand why this offends you or hurts you. And then all of a sudden, our fault becomes their fault. Man, my toes hurt right now. Because that's reality. And that's pride. And, and, and then on the other side of that receiving end in our relationships, whether it's married couples or the relationships that go on and on in this room. There, you have tons of relationships you're connected to. Live 
in a way that is forgiving. Don't think that you're going to forgive them and say, well, I'll forgive you for now, but I'm sure in a week later we'll be back down the same road. That's not loving forgivingly. So love forgivingly. And then love understandingly. Not what you imagine people to be, but what they are. Love them understandingly. We must remember that behind every wrongful act is a need in someone's life. And you may be the one that is that sole source of hope that is going to show love in an understanding way that takes them from where they are and helps them to where they need to be. Behind every wrongful act is a need in someone's life. Now, as we finish, let's not forget what verse 35 says. He says, by this, by what? Relational dynamite, by loving like I love you, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Parkway can be solid in its doctrinal beliefs. And it can be energetic in its communicating of truth. But if an unbeliever comes in and does not see love among the body of believers, we will every time miss the mark. Our doctrine will remain solid. Our energy to proclaim truth will always remain energetic. But if we shy away from loving one another as Christ loves us, an unbeliever will want nothing to do with us. So how, church, do we go away from these walls and love one another? Jesus has given the corrupted culture around us. Do we live in a corrupted world? Yes, we do. And Jesus has given the corrupted culture around us permission to judge if we are born-again Christians by the very demonstration of our love to other believers. That's why, church, I want you to be careful about how you jibber-jabber and talk out loud. When you're in the lobby complaining about this, this, and this, and him and her and all of that, when you sit in your pew and you have nothing positive to input or put into the system, and it's always negative, harsh, and rude, you will be responsible for those ears who hear you and see your life as a reflection of Jesus' love. That's contamination. And if you're willing to live that way, you can't pay me a million dollars to walk in your shoes for one day with that corrupt. And we love people. And we will do everything we can, never to compromise, but to stand for truth. And as we stand for that truth, we will pour the power of the gospel into people's lives that we live beyond these walls becomes the who you and I really are. That's who we really are. And we think about what love is. I, I wanted to end with this. It seems that a group of professionals posed this question to a group of four to eight-year-olds about some thoughts on love. The answers that they gave were very broad, very deep, than anyone could have imagined. So here are some of them. Rebecca, age eight, she said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. 
Then Carl, age five, said, Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That's all it takes. I love my wife dearly every day. (laughs) Terry, age four, said, Love is what makes you smile when you are tired. Hmm. Bobby, age seven, Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening the presents and just listen. (laughs) Nika, age six, says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Hmm. Age six, Claire, says, my mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me to sleep at night. (laughs) And then Chris, age seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford or Brad Pitt. Huh. I've never heard that before. Today you could say Chris Pine, but I just can't stand that guy. Lauren, age four, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. Lauren, was that you? No, okay. And then Jessica, age eight, You really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Because people forget. Wow. I was studying last night, finishing up with some thoughts, and there was a story about a four-year-old. His his neighbor was an older gentleman, and he had just lost his wife. And so the four-year-old walked over to to the yard next door. He climbed up the steps, and he went up to the older gentleman, and he just sat in his lap. And as he sat in his lap, he just stayed there for a little while. The mom would kind of watch the scenery from her porch. And then a few minutes later, the little boy jumped off the lap and came back. The mom said to the little boy, what in the world did you say to Mr. Jones? He said, I said nothing at all. I just sat on his lap and I cried with him. (laughs) The stories of love, well, they'll, they'll pull at our heartstrings. And the kids are cute and the stories are funny. But the rubber meets the road with us. Are we going to really live like Jesus with relational dynamite? Are we going to take love that obliterates everything in its path? Christians and church, that's going to be hard to put into action. But if we truly want to live like Jesus, we'll do everything we can with his help to have relational dynamite. Would you stand with me, Father? Thank you for what you teach us through your son, Jesus Christ. When I look at this passage of scripture, we think what in the world would give basis for Jesus to teach on this relational dynamite, this love? And then we look pre-story and we see Judas leaving to betray Jesus. And then we see post-story and we see Jesus having to tell one from his inner circle the next day he would deny him three times yet with the prequel and the sequel Jesus still loved unconditionally we come into our love cycles and we're willing to love if we're valued we're willing to love if love is given in return We're willing even to love if we can see some some investment and rewards in the future. But Jesus, 
told us and through his disciples that this commandment is to love others as I have loved you. So Lord, work in our hearts today in some way or in another. Help us to grab a hold of this truth, to apply it, and to take active steps to be intentional with our loving. If there's somebody here that doesn't know the greatest love of Jesus giving his life on the cross for them, would you draw them to yourself that we may see them come to a personal relationship in you?